Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. On July 19, 1957, six men stood casually next to a signpost in the Nevada desert. Five of the men were U.S. Air Force officers. The sixth was a cameraman. The five Air Force men stood in a line behind the signpost, facing the camera, and the cameraman began filming. A clue to what was about to take place was in bold text on the signpost itself. It read, Ground Zero, Population 5. An F-89J Scorpion interceptor was en route to the location, and in a few moments it would launch a two-kiloton atomic bomb, which would detonate above the men's heads. The men were Colonel Sidney Bruce, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Ball, Major Norman Bodinger, Major John Hughes, Don Luttrell, and cameraman Akira Yoshitaki, who didn't appear in the footage. Above-ground nuclear tests were banned internationally six years later in 1963, but until then, tests were frequently conducted with some useful data collected, but they also created a spectacle. A little bit of sabre-rattling, if you like, hopefully serving as a deterrent to the other side. So what data was to be collected from detonating a nuclear device over the heads of these volunteers? Well, none that I'm aware of. It seems the whole thing was a massive PR stunt, and in order to understand why, we need to have a look at the technology of the day. In the days before intercontinental ballistic missiles, a nuclear attack would have come from fleets of bomber aircraft that would converge over a city and drop their bombs. Not entirely unchallenged, but certainly if there were enough of them, some were bound to get through. So in 1954, a think tank was put together by then US President Eisenhower, which eventually resulted in a 190-page document titled Meeting the Threat of Surprise Attack, which argued that the most effective way to stop a fleet of thermonuclear armed bombers was to nuke them. In short, if a nuclear missile was fired at a fleet of bombers, the blast radius, 1,000 feet in this particular case, would destroy all of them and their cargo in one fell swoop. And this resulted in the Air 2 Genie missile, or Air 2A Genie, a nuclear warhead designed to be fired air to air. There was a problem though, and that problem was the rest of the population. Did the citizens of the United States feel comfortable about having atomic weapons exploded over their heads, even if it was in defence? Perhaps a good way to allay any fears the public might have would be a demonstration. And so, they asked for some volunteers. And this is how we came to have footage of five men standing in the Nevada desert, underneath a thermonuclear explosion. The footage can be easily found on the internet if you'd like a peek, and it shows the five men in uniform casually standing around until a white flash is seen, at which point I venture to say that it begins to look far more like bravery than nonchalance. You see, when the flash goes off, they all flinch. But they were in no real danger. 
They were too far away to be hit by the blast wave, and radioactive fallout is much more of a problem when the blast vaporises material, draws it into the cloud, irradiates it, and then it falls to Earth again. The radiation from this particular blast simply dissipated into the atmosphere. Indeed, the volunteers of what is known as the John Shot, the first and only test of an air-to-air nuclear missile, led long and healthy lives some of them making it well into their 90s. In an earlier episode, I told the story of Airman Nicholas Alchemade, who, amongst other close shaves with death, managed to survive jumping out of a damaged aircraft and falling approximately 20,000 feet without a parachute. But he's not alone. When 17-year-old Julian Kepke and her mother Maria boarded a plane in Lima, Peru on Christmas Eve 1971, she was excited to be travelling to see her father, Hans Wilhelm, who was located at a research station in the Amazon rainforest. Being the holiday season, they were only able to obtain seats with a carrier named Lancer, which had a questionable safety record. Her father had advised them not to fly with Lancer, but the flight was only to go for an hour, and the excitement about the reunion quelled any concerns. Although there was bad weather that day. Weather bad enough to delay the flight for some seven hours. But eventually, they were in the air on what seemed to be a routine flight. But that would all change. While crossing the Andes at 21,000 feet the plane flew into a violent storm. Turbulence caused luggage to fall out of the lockers and objects to fly around the cabin, and needless to say, the passengers were anxious. Julienne held her mother's hand as lightning struck the plane and ignited one of the fuel tanks. Soon, the plane would be in a nosedive, out of control and disintegrating. Julienne would fall three kilometres, strapped to her seat. Due to shock, she had almost no recollection of hitting the ground, but somehow, broken collarbone notwithstanding, she had survived. Julianne would drift in and out of consciousness for the next day or so, but eventually recovered enough to get up and begin calling out. But she soon realised that she was alone. With a broken collarbone and deep lacerations on her hands and legs, she began the arduous journey out of the rainforest. A journey that would take her 10 days, and the only sustenance she would have for the journey was a bag of sweets she found amongst the wreckage. But Julian had an advantage over other people. Her father, a biologist who studied the Amazon, had taught her much about the rainforest, and one of the things he had taught her was that following a water source downstream will eventually lead to civilization. And so when Julian heard running water, she felt there was hope. Not to mention, by this time, she was extremely thirsty. But it was slow going. Apart from jaguars and caimans and other dangerous animals, there are venomous snakes that camouflage to look like leaf litter. Julienne would throw her only remaining shoe a few feet in front of her to disturb anything lurking on the forest floor, move forward, retrieve the shoe, and repeat the process. And in this way, she travelled for ten days in heat, humidity and rain, over gnarled logs and rough terrain, with no food or medical supplies. 
The stream she was following led to a river, and she was able to swim downstream during the day and rest on the bank at night. Don't forget this is a part of the world where there are piranhas and alligators, and the so-called rest she was supposedly getting on the bank of an evening meant being frequently woken up by biting insects. But on the tenth day of her ordeal, she finally came upon evidence of human activity in the form of a boat. A pathway from the boat led to a hut that had an outboard motor and a jerry can full of petrol. The petrol was a godsend. Her wounds were so bad now that they had maggots in them. And so, using another trick her father had taught her, she braced herself and poured the petrol on the wounds, both forcing the maggots to the surface and disinfecting them. Julian slept in the hut that night and awoke to a wonderful sound the following morning. Human voices. She was at a logging camp, and the loggers had returned. She was safe, and within a few days would be reunited with her father while recuperating in hospital. The rainforest canopy made searching for the downed plane almost impossible, but Julianne was able to give them directions. Sadly, it would turn out that Julianne was the sole survivor. She would write a book about her ordeal called When I Fell From The Sky, and a documentary was made called Wings of Hope. A footnote to this story is that the documentary's director, Werner Herzog, was to be on the same flight, but a last-minute change to his schedule caused him to cancel. At the time of this recording in 2022, Julian Kepke is still alive and residing in Munich. been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.